Welcome to the Success in Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Rajani Kata, author of the best-selling residency match guide, The Successful Match, and creator of the Residency Interview 101 course. This is a special series on the podcast called Energized at Work. We hear so much about burnout in medicine, and it is a real and very challenging problem. That's why I wanted to learn from doctors in all types of specialties who are the opposite of burned out. These are the doctors who are energized by work. I'm looking forward to sharing lessons and secrets from these doctors on this special series. I am very excited to be speaking today with one of my former colleagues at Baylor. And one of the reasons I was so excited to bring Dr. Anthony Brissett on the podcast is because he has a long and storied career in otolaryngology and facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. And he's still going very strong. And I think his interests and his passion for the field, I think there's a lot that we can learn from him. So I'm so excited to have you on. Welcome, Dr. Brissett. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Kata. I was excited to get the invitation and certainly happy to be a part of your podcast. I'll just give our, our listeners a little bit of an overview. The way that Dr. Brissett and I first met was because he was the former director of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at the Baylor College of Medicine. And so we in the dermatology department knew him very well because of the plastic and reconstructive work that he did with patients with skin cancer. Now, he is also former director at Baylor, current vice chair of otolaryngology at the Houston Methodist Hospital, as well as division chief of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery there. And he is double boarded in otolaryngology and facial plastic surgery. So I think one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, Dr. Brissett, is with that background, what is your current week to week? What does that look like? Yeah, you know, my week is pretty structured. Um, and, you know, having a structured week really kind of helps me, you know, stay consistent. So, you know, I, from the very beginning, created days where I operate and days when I'm in clinic. Uh, and then also have kind of structured you know, my days outside of the operating room as well. So just in relationship to my clinical practice, I am operating every other day and I'm in clinic every other day. Uh, so typically I see patients um, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and then I'm in the operating room on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And you as well have administrative duties and um, an additional volunteer time. How are you making time for those activities as well? Yeah, so, you know, I still work robustly with medical students, with residents. Um, I started a fellowship this year as well. So I now have um, a fellow that's on board um, who started in July and we've matched our fellow for 2024 as well. I'm also um, a VP uh, for development and humanitarian affairs and research for my academy and amongst the variety 
of other activities. Um, and so there's a lot of hats to be worn uh, and a lot of activity. And so, you know, I try to create as much structure and as much routine as I can. Uh, and so um, I do have some administrative time that's carved out. Um, I do routinely meet with my research team. Um, that too is carved out. Um, I have residents and fellows um, and medical students that are doing research projects and um, they work uh, with my study coordinator as well. Uh, and then um, I also run um, a couple of nonprofits as well that provide care both here in the United States as well as care throughout the world and also focusing on the diaspora as well. Um, and so I think there's a lot to be done, just kind of creating structure um, in one's daily work um, and finding time to kind of balance all of those things it can sometimes be a challenge, um, but I think the structure is really, and the routine is really where I've been able to create the balance for that. Wow. And Dr. Brissett, I did not realize that you now had a fellowship. Congratulations. That's that's a big project right there. And then certainly being vice president of your society in that area, let alone the, the nonprofit work. And I definitely want to delve a little bit deeper into the nonprofit work that you do, because I think what you're doing there is amazing. But before we get to that, can you tell me a little bit about your clinical interests? Um, sort of what, um, what conditions do you like to focus on? Uh, a little bit more about that, as well as your research interests. Yeah, certainly. So I'm a facial plastic surgeon, so I only deal with the face. Um, my practice has evolved over the past several years. Um, I think uh, you know, when I was um, at Baylor, it was probably a blend of um, reconstruction and cosmetic more heavily on the recon side. But over the years, you know, the um, cosmetic aspect continues to grow. Um, the recon side continues to stay robust. Um, and so on the reconstructive side, I'm no longer doing trauma or uh, those sorts of things. I'm really just doing skin cancer um, on the reconstructive side um, and, and maybe you know, some clean trauma, cheek fractures, nasal fractures, and things like that. Um, on the cosmetic side, it, it's the entire gamut of the face. So the, uh, you know, anything from office-based rejuvenation, which could be, you know, an injectable type of practice with chemo denervation, fillers, office-based lasers, other aspects, energy de delivery devices. Uh, and then on the surgical side, it is brow lifts, blepharoplasties, rhinoplasties, facelifts, and neck lifts. Um, so any of those um, kind of cosmetic surgical procedures. An area that is of very specific interest to me um, is ethnic sensitive or you know, ethnic aspects in relationship to facial plastic surgery, primarily rejuvenation and rhinoplasty. So I talk a lot about, think a lot about the kind of intersectionality of race and gender. Uh, in race and culture and how that you know, can impact on one's perspective and how global aesthetics can impact in relationship to you know, kind of surgical outcomes and surgical rejuvenation as well. So that's very interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of what brought you into that area? What made you decide to delve a little bit deeper there? 
Well, there's a variety of things. I mean, one is that we live in one of the most diverse cities in the country. Uh, and so, you know, Houston is the fourth largest city in, in the country, uh, one of the most diverse cities in the country. And as a result, I see patients from multiple races, multiple cultures, um, and also, um, you know, that could be you know, of mixed race as well. Uh, and so, you know, that began, you know, the initial thought. Um, and this has been a seed that's been planted many, many years ago. What I also recognized uh, was that there are several patients that are of unique race or culture that want to preserve their racial features, preserve their cultural features or cultural identity, um, but at the same time, do want to create an improvement in relationship to appearance. And so I was seeing patients that oftentimes were influenced by Western culture, um, who may have seen surgeons that were strongly influenced by Western concepts of beauty, um, and had what I've coined as a cultural transformation or a racial transformation as it relates to their facial appearance and cosmetic surgery. And I was seeing many of those patients um, that were saying, you know, I don't look like my family member. Um, I don't really look like people within my, my cohort group. And can you return some of those features to me? And so that's where I identified or created a term of cultural restoration or racial restoration, where patients wanted to have these features restored. And so in my practice, I practice and um, really espouse a concept of racial or cultural preservation so that we are working to create harmony and symmetry in patients' faces, but at the same time, you know, restore, uh, preserving you know, those unique features that might be you know, prevalent and significant concepts in relationship to their race and cultural identity. That is really interesting and something I don't think I had thought about as much previously. I, I do remember, and she's a famous East Asian newscaster. I'm blanking on her name right now, but mm -hmm. she had talked about that, how she had felt pressured to change the appearance of her eyes to mm -hmm. de-emphasize her East Asian heritage mm -hmm. and, um, and how she regretted that. So that's really interesting that you um, that you have delved deeper into that conversation with patients and then helping them explore that area. I think that's also interesting as well from the standpoint of when you started, and I don't know if this is the case for you, but I know sometimes when you start your career, you don't necessarily know exactly where your clinical interests are going to take you. Did you sure. find that developing over time, what you've, you know, what you've just discussed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that direction for one's career is based on a couple of aspects. One is your own personal interest. And the second is a need that you can identify that is being unmet. Um, and, you know, then being able to develop a level of expertise to meet that need. Um, and at least if you're exploring areas that have maybe been unexplored or underexplored, um, then you know, for me, two pivot points that allowed me to you know, kind of move that forward. One of the things that's so important as we 
continue in our careers, what I found is physicians who are who are really energized by their work, they they do continue to learn and grow even as they are <laughs> advanced in their career, you know, several decades into their career. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about your activities, in addition to such a busy day-to-day practice, is that you've been able to really focus on your humanitarian work. Can you tell me a little bit about what that entails right now and how you came to those areas of interest? Certainly. Um, That's a great question. And that's also a really specific interest of mine in relationship to um, service-oriented work uh, and offering, you know, the skills and gifts that we have to be able to apply them to people that may not necessarily have the resources we have as well. So I I work in two very specific areas um, as it relates to philanthropic work and, and care. One is here in, in Houston. So I'm a founding member and also the medical director and also on the board of an organization called Casa El Buen Samaritano, the House of the Good Samaritan. And we are the only free clinic in Houston, absolutely free. There's it's no sliding scale. Um, there's no co-pays. It's absolutely free. And we provide health care to uninsured Our primary focus when we started this clinic about 10 to 12 years ago was directed towards people within um, the Latino community. But we have since then grown beyond those boundaries and really um, serve a variety of individuals from developing nations or individuals that are just without healthcare. Um, And we um, also have now recently um, offered dental care at this clinic as well. So we have three dental bays um, and provide imaging, uh, restorative care, um, and uh, preventative care as well. This clinic sees about 3,000 patients a year. We serve um, the entire greater Houston area. That is wonderful, Dr. Prasad. Uh, That is wonderful. And as you and I both know, there's such an incredible need in Houston. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you mentioned outside of Houston as well that you're doing other work. This is true. So, you know, I have focused on, you know, providing care to a variety of places around the world. Right now, I'm really focused on two specific areas. One um, is providing care to civilians and soldiers from Ukraine. I recently traveled to Ukraine in April um, and um, uh, provided uh, and led a team of about 20, 13 from the United States and Canada, and then others from other parts of the um, the world and also from Ukraine itself. We saw a total of 112 patients in Ukraine um, and treated 30 patients over that one week time frame. Uh, we are now sending another team back in October. I will not be on that team, but I'm involved on the administrative side. And then I will lead another team back again uh, on April the 18th um, to a region called Ivano Frankis. Ivano Frankis is in the southwest border of Ukraine, um, bordering Poland. Uh, so we fly into Poland, drive into Ukraine, um, and then uh, we team uh, with uh, physicians in Ukraine uh, to be able to identify those patients and provide care. 
Wow. And this is surgical care that you're providing? This is all surgical care. So it requires a significant amount of pre-planning because these are severely injured civilians and soldiers with multiple blast injuries and significant complexity. Uh, And so many of them require virtual surgical planning, patient-specific implants, you know, a variety of technology that is available to us here in the United States. And also we partner with other folks around the world to um, allow us to get those implants created. Uh, and, um, and then all of our patients are prepared ahead of time so that we have our surgical list and our surgical plan in place before we get there. Wow. I hadn't even considered that sometimes when you think about going overseas to perform medical work, I hadn't even considered the fact that you might be doing virtual surgical planning ahead of time. And then, as you just mentioned, patient-specific materials, the amount of administrative and logistical planning that goes into just a single trip then must be significant. Um, It is, yeah. It's about three to four months of planning. Um, And so, you know, these, I think out of those 30 patients we operated on um, in Ukraine, probably about 26 of them uh, were military. Uh, and so these are individuals that are injured in the in front line or in the field. Um, they're stabilized in the field. Um, and so it gives us some time to be able to plan the um, surgical procedures for them. And so as a result, then we can really take the time that's required in order to get these implants designed, get these implants made, make sure that we have the expertise of our surgical team um, to be able to provide care. Um, and this also includes essentially you know, bringing our nurses, our anesthesiologists, our surgical techs, um, our equipment, um, our administrative team. So essentially we bring a hospital to a hospital. Uh, But at the same time, also partner with residency programs in that area. So we are working with surgeons in that area, residents and medical students in that area as well, in order to really work on building capacity. Because although you know, Ukraine has a robust medical education system, they're not prepared for war and war-related injuries. And so these are injuries that are uncommon to them. Um, And although they have an all-hands-on-deck approach, they really don't have the experience and expertise to be able to manage the complexity of these injuries, but they do have the ability. So we're just there to provide them with that conduit to be able to kind of build capacity as they continue to care for their injured soldiers and civilians. Wow. I know you're very mission-driven. And when I think about your mission for patient care and then your mission for education and then your mission for sharing resources, that's a fantastic way to bring that to the forefront there. And that kind of brings me to my next question as well, which is you've worn a lot of hats over, well, you're currently wearing a lot of hats, but also as your clinical practice has grown, how do you keep up with the changes in medicine the changes not only in the clinical practice of medicine, but the changes in the administrative side in medicine. What lessons would you share for medical students who are thinking about, wow, there's so many changes. How do we keep up with all of this? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of changes and the changes for the most part are good um, and they're exciting. They're expansive. And so I think that where I see, you know, my providers or providers get stuck uh, is not being able to embrace the changes that occur in front of them. And I think that, you know, Dr. Kata, yourself, myself, 
probably all remember when electronic medical records um, started making their way into our clinical practice. Um, and right. some providers that just refused to embrace that. And some providers that even retired as a result of the institution of electronic medical records. But it's important to recognize that there's a lot of changes that that are put in place. Um, and there are lots of modifications that are brought into place. Um, and we've got to embrace those changes if we feel that they are beneficial for patient care and for the business of medicine. And that brings up a related question for me, because one of the things I always like to say is that I love my work, but I don't always love my job. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the work of talking to patients, but I don't love prior authorizations. And What would you say is part of that job um, of doctoring that is not necessarily something you love? Yeah, well, I think it goes along with the electronic medical records. Um, (laughs) The aspect of charting, closing charts, you know, kind of doing all of those other aspects in the process of caring for patients as well can sometimes be onerous. um, And it's hard to keep up with, you know, that process of, you know, continuing to you know have a complete and comprehensive electronic medical record with charting and everything else that goes along with it so that's the part for me that has has been the most challenging um, but I think that there's also ways to overcome that as long as you have a supportive organization or a supportive practice um, or aspects that will allow you to essentially modify and or um, develop the practice to suit your needs and so for me, you know, the way that I've been able to kind of circumvent that aspect of my practice that has been a challenge um, is to ensure that I have the support within my practice to allow that to be completed. And so I have a scribe in my department right now to have a scribe, but it's also based on my clinical volume um, and other aspects. And I have to say that that scribe for me has taken the burden um, of things that I really don't enjoy in my practice and made them manageable. I feel like you have to bring that same level of innovation to the way you practice medicine as well, like creative problem solving. So that's wonderful. You've been able to, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been a new development for me. Um, Although I've been, and, and I guess that's the other aspect, especially especially for medical students where I think the future of employment for physicians is going to be, hospital-based or insurance-based or some organizational or institution-based. And so I began the process of wanting to and approaching the process of getting a scribe in 2021. And it took almost two years um, to essentially create that process for myself. And now I'm certain that it will be much easier for those within my department um, to be able to get that. As a matter of fact, um, I have two or three others that have now applied to do that. But the message is things are not always linear and they're not always as timely as we would want them to be. But making sure that we have the data, we have the information, and we're able to present a cogent argument in relationship to why this would be beneficial for patient care and for physician care as well, or physician burnout. See, I think what you just said is something that's so incredibly important, which Mm -hmm. is that it's not necessarily just about complaining, but presenting data, aligning with the organization's goals as well about, as you said, patient care and your 
physician workforce and to be able to make that really persuasive argument and also probably persistence if you started this process in 2021. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they realized that I wasn't going away. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Dr. Prasad. <laughs> so um, what, and, and you're now several decades into your career, what do you envision as the future of your career? Let's say 10, 20 years from now, what do you envision for your career? Yeah, that's a great question. I love what I do. You know, I love caring for patients. I love working with residents and fellows um, and medical students. And so I always see that as being some aspect of my life over time. Now, whether it becomes revenue versus expense, who really knows? But I do see, you know, as I think about where my practice will lead and where my career will lead, it continually focuses on mission-driven activities and then capacity building as well. And so I find myself focused on capacity building in some form or fashion um, through the nonprofits that I'm involved in on the continent of Africa, really where I see the most capacity and the most need that, um, that I can offer. And Dr. Brissett, what do you mean by capacity building? Can you define that for us? Yeah, so, you know, I think that there are resources and abilities that sometimes are available to all and sometimes that are available to none. What we recognize, or at least what I recognize, is that there are pockets within our country and pockets within the world that are having needs that are unmet. And oftentimes they are unmet because they don't have the resources. Sometimes they are unmet because they don't have the people power or the infrastructure um, to be able to develop that. And so that's where I kind of identify this aspect of capacity um, and improving upon you know, an infrastructure that can allow us to meet a need. So for example, you know, when I or we develop a mission in a specific region in the world, whether it be Russia, Ukraine, Bangladesh, Nepal, Colombia, Ghana, Sierra Leone, whatever it might be, there's an infrastructure that needs to be made or put in place that can allow one to build capacity to be able to meet the needs of the constituents. And so typically what I do is intersect with hospital administrators, ministers of health, ministers of education, local philanthropists, and politicians. Uh, and by bringing those five or six people to the table with the resources that we have within our philanthropic organizations here in Canada or the United States, we are able to then create a educational medical infrastructure that can allow us to meet the needs of those constituents um, and essentially uh, provide care and provide a long-standing pipeline that you know really will withstand the test of time. That's really inspiring just hearing you speak like this and to think beyond in the common imagination I think it's that you sort of parachute in and you parachute out but what you're talking about is so much more holistic and so much more long-lasting than that vision that uh, that some of us might have about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a perfect example. 
I began working with you know, a, the military hospital in Rwanda about 10 or 12 years ago. And at that time, there was one plastic surgeon in the country, one. And that one plastic surgeon served the entire country and served that country primarily in their military hospital. We began with myself and four or five others with an organization called Face the Future, which is a Canadian-based organization. Some colleagues of mine from Johns Hopkins, as well as Mayo Clinic and other places, began going there. So fast forward now, 10 years later, he now has a residency program that trains four to five surgeons a year. We no longer do missions where we're there for 10 days at a time, taking over the hospital. We are now doing what we call micro missions. So he now will say, you know, I just want a group, one surgeon to come in for 10 days to meet with my residents and teach them rhinoplasty or teach them facial reanimation or whatever it may be. You know, now we do that four or five or six times a year uh, and have that and unique and really kind of almost like a concierge aspect of learning. And what we recognize is that if we can meet the needs, it's best to meet the needs of people where they are, as opposed to pulling them out of their community, trying to train them in England or Germany or Israel or whatever it might be. Because the reality is a great percentage of those patients never come back home to serve their community. And I don't blame them for that decision. But if we can meet the needs of people where they are, uh, and if we can focus on creating infrastructure, then we can really move the needle in very, very meaningful ways. And this is just one example of that. See, I love the way that came together that I can see now what you mean by capacity building, that you start with one plastic surgeon in the entire country, and now you're training four or five every single year. That's capacity right there. Oh, And not only that, they will then become a regional training center for East Africa. So, you know, they're training folks in Rwanda, but people from Uganda, people from Kenya, all of those surrounding areas are now beginning to identify that this now is you know, a place where I can come to be trained and then serve my community as well. Oh, that's incredibly inspirational. In the show notes, I would love to link to the, to the websites of these organizations. And that brings me to one final question, which is advice for medical students, Dr. Brissett. Um, and I guess I can go two specific questions. One is advice that's specific to students who are interested in otolaryngology. And then students who are interested in the kind of philanthropic work that you're doing. Advice on those two areas. I think that there's, I mean, it's an open-ended question in relationship to advice. And I think there are lots of ways to go. As a medical student, I find that students oftentimes don't necessarily have a great idea of the direction that they want to go in. You know, and I think that's, that's okay. I think it's really important to identify what you like to and what your interests are. But if you don't know what your direction is and what your interests are, 
then equally important as what you like to do is make sure you identify what you don't like to do. Um, because you know, if you don't identify that, you don't have a true north, you can find yourself in a specialty that is really not your area of interest, but you, know, you haven't really kind of identified what you like, or more importantly, you haven't identified what you don't like. Um, and so in the choice of choosing a specialty, I think it's important to do that. You know, in the aspects of otolaryngology, I think that, you know, otolaryngology, I think I saw a, a post the other day that it's probably the second to fourth most competitive residency right behind dermatology, orthopedic surgery, and plastic surgery. So it's an, an incredibly competitive specialty to get into. Um, and so medical students that are early in their careers, first year or anywhere thereafter, you know, look to otolaryngology early um, because you certainly have to develop and create your dossier and curriculum vitae that would support your interest. Um, and so whether it be research, papers, presentations, all of those things. So I see a lot of potential residents or medical students saying, I didn't know about otolaryngology until I was a third year medical student. And sometimes, you know, it's a challenge to make sure that you're meeting all of the expectations of these competitive programs if you identify them late in your career or late in your med medical educational experience. Um, and so for otolaryngology, I would say if you're a first year medical student and you're not familiar with otolaryngology, go to your program um, that's in your institution or go to a otolaryngologist in the community and explore that as an option because it certainly is the best of medicine and surgery um, uh, combined. Um, it's a great, great specialty. And so I would certainly encourage you to do that. And then the other aspect is, and it's kind of cliche-ish to a certain degree, but work incredibly hard at everything that you do, but enjoy the ride um, and the pathway to get there as well. Uh, because it doesn't really slow down throughout the lifetime, but you know, enjoying that ride is uh, is an important aspect. And there's an African cliche that I bring um, that reminds me of that entire process, which is you know, kind of bringing people together as you are, you know, wanting to uh, explore all of these options. And the the cliche is, well, if you want to run fast, run alone, but if you want to run far, run together. You know, putting a group together, putting a, um, a community together and enjoying the experience um, is probably the best way to run as far as you can. It's beautiful and so true. So, Dr. Brissett, thank you so much for sharing your, your hard-earned experience and your wisdom around this process. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time. Well, Dr. Kata, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for creating this platform that allows for medical students and those that are pursuing a career in medicine to have the opportunity to interact and or you know, get a glimpse of different perspectives and different specialties um, and, uh, and different opportunities as well. And so this is really something that I think is going to be beneficial, uh, what you're doing for all of those that are interested in pursuing a medical career. Thank you.